Welcome. We're delighted that you're here. My name is John Hamry. Uh, I'm the president here at CSIS. Uh, this is a continuation of a program series that we've been sponsoring uh, under our Smart Power umbrella. And uh, if I could just say a word, uh, we've had uh, a great debate in this country about how we've been exercising our tools of engagement in the world. And many people have felt that we've put far too much emphasis on military power, hard power, and that what we needed to do is to recover the full spectrum of capabilities and tools that the United States has uh, in its, in its uh, toolbox as it interacts with the rest of the world. And so we put that under the umbrella of smart power. How does America become a wise and sophisticated internationalist uh, again? And there's no element of that that's more important I would argue, than our trade policy. If you think about how we Americans touch the rest of the world, there's probably nothing that's larger you know, than this one question, uh, our economic interaction in the world. And we live in a world that is so where the barriers of interaction have been dropping so dramatically. And of course, that has unhinged a lot of people. A fair number of people, especially in, in the United States, are anxious about the future, and they're anxious about the future really around, around this question, and it's a major element in this upcoming presidential debate. Uh, you know, how does a, a mature and sophisticated and developed society cope with the emergence of a billion people on the international job market and still manage to keep our sense of well-being as well as to seek general progress in, uh, in the globe. And that's the challenge before us. Uh, we've got two remarkable individuals who are going to uh, lead us through a discussion today on trade policy. Uh, Carla Hills, of course, she uh, was the U.S. trade representative, uh, but is a, has had so many, uh, such an important life in public policy in, the, in Washington over the years. And I'm very, very proud to say that she's a trustee here at CSIS and has been quite outspoken in trying to lead the United States to a wiser and more sophisticated approach to trade policy and hard. It's a, we're in an era when there's a lot of skepticism and she's been truly courageous in trying to foster the, the sensible balanced debate that we need to have. Grant Aldonis, who is the Shoal chairholder here at CSIS and has been doing pioneering work as well on reformulating the way we think about trade policy. And both of them are going to, uh, Grant is really going to be interviewing Carla, but I suspect it's going to be a dialogue, and a rich dialogue between the two. So let me turn to them. Uh, Grant, I think you're going to say a few words of introduction, and let me turn it to you and Carla to take it from there. So Grant, please. Thank you all for coming. Well, thank you, John. Actually, I'm not uh, going to give a few words of introduction. Carla doesn't need any. Probably the only thing to say is that uh, just a, a mention about my admiration for Carla. There uh, are a few people that I've worked with, um, whether it's on trade policy or economic policy generally, uh, that have a broader reach in their thinking about the way the system works and that are capable of thinking both about the the, the theory and the fundamental values that ought to drive the process as well as the practical politics and how the, uh, the push and shove within an administration or between an administration and the Hill uh, makes a difference in shaping those policies. And so we've got a real opportunity, I think, to hear what Carla has to say at a moment where I know from my own perspective is, I think, critical from the point of view of not only 
our trade policy, but our engagement in the world around us. Uh, we are at an ar- odd confluence where, despite the manifold and manifest benefits of globalization uh, that benefit every American, uh, we are seeing a populist trend in our politics that animates a debate on immigration among Republicans and a debate about trade among Democrats, but is a very, very significant challenge to what we think of as engagement in the world and the exercise of what would be smart power. Uh, so with that brief introduction, I just want to turn it over to Carla for a few minutes. We'll engage in a little bit of a conversation, but uh, recognizing lots of faces and lots of expertise in the room, we relatively quickly want to open this up for a dialogue really with the group. Uh, and you know, if nobody responds, I know most of you by name and I'll be calling on you, I think is the best way to put it. So Carla, please. All those accolades from John and Grant are bound to be disappointed. But let me say how pleased I am to be with you and uh, talk about trade. Um, I think as Grant's alluded to, the uh, elections of uh, 2008 really mark a turning point in the bipartisan consensus favoring the free flow of goods, services, people, capital, that has guided our nation since World War II. Uh, During the primaries, the uh, leading Democratic contenders for president attacked free trade and pledged to vote against the bilateral uh, agreements with Korea and Colombia that the current administration has uh, (laughs) negotiated on the grounds that trade agreements hurt U.S. workers. Uh, Globalization and trade are blamed for stagnant wages, loss of jobs, decline of the dollar, China's rise, and growing economic inequality in our country. And it's hard to believe, especially for me, that it was just over a decade ago that the United States, led by a Democratic administration, was celebrating the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement pledging with 33 other democratically elected governments in the Western Hemisphere to negotiate a free trade area for the Americas and endorsing an agreement reached by the 21 economies of the Asia-Pacific region to liberalize trade throughout that region. Now, sadly, an increasing number of our elected representatives have embraced what Robert Samuelson has called a new mercantilism, which he defines as a policy intended to advance one country's economic and political interests at other countries' expense. And mercantilism stands in stark contrast to David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, which argues that all countries benefit when markets are kept open and each country sells what it best produces, and that is the theory that has guided our trade policy, which has been bipartisan, for more than six decades. Now, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that those uh, uh, seeking elective office have come suddenly to an epiphany causing them to reject 60 years of bipartisan consensus favoring open markets, they've simply read the polls. And in March of 2007, a Wall Street Journal, NBC poll, 
54% of Democratic voters asked said that free trade agreements hurt the United States compared to 21% who said that they helped. And in a similar poll conducted this past December, a majority of Republicans polled agreed with the statement that free trade had been bad for the United States. So the question is, why have, has the American public turned sour on trade? And I believe there are two basic reasons. One is misinformation, and the second is anxiety that John Hamry alluded to. First, Americans are misinformed about how open markets contribute to our nation's growth and our national security. Few Americans know that their prosperity has been enhanced. I would say very few know that the opening of global markets over the past 60 years has made our nation richer by $1 trillion per year, which means that the average American family has $9,000 per year additional wealth, or that the future gains from opening markets could generate another $500 billion benefiting American households by some $4,500 per year, or that jobs connected with trade pay 13 to 18 percent more than jobs in the overall economy, or that agricultural tariffs are five times higher than uh, tariffs on manufactured goods, which prevent poor countries from making their way out of poverty, since poor countries typically have very large rural populations. Or that tariffs are significantly higher on the products that poor countries produce, like glassware, footwear, textiles, and apparel, than on upscale uh, products that rich countries produce and uh, with a result that last year Bangladesh paid us $120 million more in tariffs on $3 billion of exports than France did on $37 billion. Or that uh, large Muslim societies like Bangladesh, Indonesia, and Pakistan, each of which, each of which, have 100 million people living below the international poverty line face these high trade restrictions that limit their opportunities for growth. Or that uh, reducing global poverty is not simply a humanitarian measure for generous Americans, but directly contributes to our nation's security because impoverished nations do not enforce their laws or secure their borders, and it makes it difficult for us to uh, fight international crime, narcotics trafficking, disease pandemics, and so much more. So I believe that a new administration should make it a priority to educate Americans about these facts and so many more. And it should reach out for help from business, think tanks, universities, and yes, the media. Take business. It would make a huge difference if every CEO of every U.S. company that has any international activity would explain the facts that I just recited plus 
so many others, to uh, their worker populations, and to state, in addition, the percentage of revenues that that company derives from its trade, and the percentage of, of the paycheck that that individual gets as a result of trade. And they could spread this message by putting posters on the walls, the big company, uh, internal TV networks, websites, uh, meetings in cafeterias, and notices with the W-2 and in the pay envelopes. But I must admit that while educating Americans about why open trade is necessary, it will not be sufficient to turn the tide. A new administration will also need to counter the anxiety that is growing and that many Americans feel about their economic futures. Polls show that workers' anxiety is substantially reduced when they are told that trade liberalization will be accompanied by programs to help those who are displaced. Increasingly, think tanks and policy analysts are looking at wage insurance, a program that supplements the income of a displaced worker who takes an entry-level job at uh, a lower uh, at a lower pay rate, ensuring the income gap encourages that worker to stay in the workforce, uh, 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 so that there is no need to pay unemployment insurance. But more importantly, it secures for that worker effective job training, which is training on a real job. Polls also show that making health care benefits portable and providing tax credits for uh, premiums during periods of unemployment help re uh, reduce worker anxiety. Significantly, the studies that show that our nation gains $1 trillion per year from open markets also show that the annual costs of wage insurance and health care assistance to be between 12 and $15 billion per year. Our government currently spends less than $5 billion per year on these sorts of programs to help uh, displaced workers adjust. To build support for open trade, a new administration will need to focus on these and other means to help those who feel high anxiety by reason of displacement. And growing income disparity is also contributing to our increased economic anxieties. Americans worry that the shift of earnings away from less skilled workers in favor of those with higher skills will enable countries that have large pools of unskilled labor to destroy the American dream. The pay, the pay gap is widening between those who are educated and those who are not. Nobel Prize winning economist Gary Becker has written that the earning differential of those with a college degree over those with a high school degree has jumped 30% since 1980 to 70% today, with an additional premium over that for an advanced degree up from 50% in 1980 to well over 100% today. And if our country is to remain super competitive 
in the 21st century, we will need a workforce that is the best trained and the most productive in the world. And that will require us to start by improving education uh, in the K through 12 years. It is unacceptable, in my view, that today more than 30% of our high school students fail to graduate. And if we are to lead in today's technologically driven world, we will need to encourage more of our young people to become better educated in the hard sciences. Some have called for incentives for college students to study math and science. Others believe that we should finance college education in exchange for public service. For years, we have given tax incentives to encourage businesses to invest in capital equipment to enhance our nation's productivity. A new administration should, in my view, focus on how to create effective incentives to encourage investment in human capital. Here, too, a new administration should enlist the help of our private sector. The ability to create effective programs to cushion the costs of displacement and to help build the skills that are needed to adjust in our fast-changing world will benefit from a public-private partnership. Businesses can't afford to have global markets close because of the economic anxieties building here at home. And some companies have already launched effective educational programs for their employees. I know of one company that pays the tuition costs and gives up to three weeks per year of paid time off for any employee to take uh, classes at accredited colleges and universities. And then it grants $10,000 of stock to those employees who obtain a degree. And when it it relocates a job, whether domestically or overseas, it extends that educational offer for four years. Since the program began in 1996, 20,000 of its employees have earned degrees. The company figures that the program costs it about $60 million a year. With revenues of $48 billion per year, it believes that its investment enhances the skills of its employees and creates a bond that is invaluable. Now, smaller companies could create programs to upgrade their employees' education that are suitable to their revenues. But an all-out effort is needed. Let me say in conclusion that I believe a newly elected president should recall recall Norman Cousins' uh, statement that history is a vast warning system. There are some eerie similarities between the circumstances that uh, existed last century with those that exist today. Remember, from 1860 to 1914, we enjoyed a remarkable period of global growth that was cut off by World War I. This earlier period was characterized by relatively open trade, limited capital regulation, 
tremendous technological innovation with the introduction of the radio, telephone, and internal combustion engine, and a robust global economy where America was its largest contributor. After World War I, we failed to muster the political will to reopen the global economy. The decade following the hostilities saw tension grow among the great powers, instability in the alliance system, and the spreading influence of the Bolsheviks, who were hostile to capitalism and dedicated to using violence to change the world in accordance with their ideology. In 1927 and 1928, America's labor markets weakened. Candidate Herbert Hoover pledged in the 1928 presidential campaign to help farmers by raising tariffs on agricultural goods. Anxiety soared with the 1929 banking crisis, and on June 17, 1930, Congress sent to the President the Smoot-Hawley Act raising tariffs to record highs on 20,000 imported goods. President Hoover said he disapproved of the bill. He wanted to limit its scope, but he declined to veto it, notwithstanding 1,008 economists signed a petition urging him to veto. Before the ink was dry, our trading partners began a retaliation that brought the global economy and our own to a standstill. And within a decade, the peace was again destroyed. Today, by comparison, we have enjoyed six decades of remarkable growth and truly remarkable technolo technological achievement. Tensions are increasing as the world seeks to adjust to the rise of China and India. Alliances in the Security Council and at NATO have weakened. Al-Qaeda and similar terrorist groups hostile to Western values <coughs> seek through violence to change the world according to their ideology. Our financial institutions are under considerable stress because of the mortgage crisis and high energy prices and the credit squeeze have led to increasing layoffs. Against that backdrop, candidates for public office are claiming that open trade is costing our nation millions of jobs and are pledging to vote against trade agreements already negotiated by our government and to pull out of others. Restrictive legislation has been introduced in the 110th Congress, ranging from penalizing outsourcing to curtailing Chinese imports, and we have a farm bill that has increased subsidies in the face of record commodity prices. Efforts to limit foreign competition risk, repeating the policy mistakes that have cost us so dearly in the past, and failure to integrate poorer nations into the global trading system will not only limit our own future economic opportunities, but will alienate the excluded populations, encouraging them to side with those who would do us harm.
a new administration should reach out to lead the world to lower trade barriers, to create new economic opportunity for all nations, including our own. And to do that will require our public and private sectors to work hard to rebuild a domestic constituency that understands just what is at stake and to take the steps necessary to ensure that our nation can and will compete in the 21st century. Thank you. Carla, that was terrific as always, uh, both in laying out really what the challenges are, I think, economically and politically, but also uh, how critical the juncture is right now. And I kind of want to pick up just to begin with with where you left off. I was uh, always struck whenever Bill Roth would uh, we'd go in for a markup or for uh, onto the floor of the Senate uh, to take up a trade bill because the lore on the Finance Committee was that uh, Reed Smoot of Utah actually didn't want as high an increase in tariffs and that he got rolled uh, both in the committee <laughs> and on the Senate floor. And uh, so Roth would always grab me by the elbow and say, I'm not going to end up like poor old Reed Smoot, am I? You know? <laughs> Just to remind me to count the noses <laughs> one more time before we went to a vote. And I'm struck, though, by that moment, in part because with Senator Moynihan and Senator Roth, you had two individuals who seemed to know in their bones that our trade policy was an element of keeping the peace. It was an element of uh, creating opportunities and an element of a foreign policy that guaranteed other nations had a stake in the success of the American enterprise. And the Smart Power Commission that did its work here, you really used as a predicate uh, the idea that we had to do a better job of exercising these other tools of diplomacy, of which trade policy is definitely a part. So in some respects, I think back to that time and I say, how did we lose that understanding that an open trade policy and engagement to the world is quintessentially a part of American leadership globally, and then how do we get it back? It's tough today. It's tougher than when you and I were in government. The world is changing so rapidly that people are out of breath trying to cope. And when my father worked, he went to work for a company and stayed for 30 years and retired. Now people change jobs uh, every three or four years. Even the longevity of a CEO has been greatly truncated. And change means adjustment. Change means discomfort in many, many instances. There is a study that shows that uh, of people changing jobs, one-third get a better job, one-third get an equivalent job, and one-third get a lesser job. And that one-third we need to deal with. Also, I do believe, Grant, that uh, we are seeing the retirement of the best-educated Americans in the baby boomers. Uh, and we are have a gap there where, as I mentioned, a third of our students in high school fail to graduate. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? The jobs today in manufacturing are done disproportionately through technology. 
The old blue-collar work in manufacturing is being done by machines and more effectively. We are not losing manufacturing jobs because of trade. Our manufacturing output is up 30%. We are still today the world's largest manufacturer. Most people don't know that. But we do it with 20% fewer workers. We need to have our children, our youngsters, and our people who are in jobs engaged in a lifetime of learning, moving in this dynamic economy. And the economy has become more dynamic than when we started. And so it ha it, when we say we want to give a college education to uh, a, a segment of people who are unlikely to be able to afford it, this is less a humanitarian and generosity than it is in building the strength of our nation and our own security, in my view. And if we talked about it in those terms, uh, I think it would be easier for people to understand. I mean, the response makes sense, Carla, in part because, um, you know, whether other countries think we are or not, we think of ourselves as a moral people and, and the values that we have about our society, about individual freedom, about equal opportunity are broadly consistent with what you want out of an open trade policy. Uh, you know, trade always sort of shakes up the entrenched economic interests uh, in large part, and that's both here and abroad. And trying to create a vision out of that that was more reassuring to people obviously depends on someone who can put that vision out there. Yes. It also depends on some very practical things. And you alluded to a couple of those in terms of programs like wage insurance and things like that. I've been struck... Our unemployment insurance program was created in the 1930s. Uh, it hasn't changed fundamentally. Yes. It, it basically, the, both the experience of employment and unemployment um, are fundamentally different today than there were then. Uh, trade adjustment assistance, 1962, is created. It has a nexus to trade to prove that you've been thrown out of your job. Irrelevant, really, in the face of the technological changes you're describing in our manufacturing industry. It sort of speaks to the need for a broader set of reforms than some of the things that are currently in front of uh, the Congress. And it could be helpful, actually, to hear you have um, an opportunity to lay out how you think that should work, as well as what we should be doing to invest in education. I know you touched on it in your remarks, but I'm struck by the fact that that is the key to our future competitiveness, particularly in this environment where technology rules. Well, I believe in grand bargains. Uh, I think that politically it's difficult for some of our elected representatives to just vote their conscience. But uh, I had always hoped that we would deal with uh, trade adjustment assistance and fix the program. One of, it, it has many limitations. You know, eight out of ten of our workers are in the service sector. Trade adjustment assistance does not deal with service workers. It has a cap of $10,000 and you must be 50 years of age. That doesn't work to reduce anxiety when you're 40 years old, have three kids, and don't have a job. And, you know, I regard our workforce the way I would regard a plantation of trees, and I own that plantation. I think that you don't want your trees to die. You want to water them. You want to take care of them. And it seems to me that every American wants 
the country to be strong and the people to be well-educated so we can be the most productive, most competitive, most entrepreneurial in the world. We have been in the past. Why do we give it up? Because we're not willing to water our trees. It strikes me as nonsense. You know, it's interesting what you're saying, Carla, because uh, globalization has fundamentally changed the nature of competition. It's now a, a global contest over attracting capital, talent, and ideas. And if you look at our economic policy and our trade policy through that lens, it's all about creating an economic environment that's attractive to people who can mobilize capital, talent, and ideas, of which a good public education system is absolutely central to that. And yet, there doesn't seem to be, in the currents of our political debate right now, any attempt to draw a nexus between the two. There seems to be an interest, whether it's uh, among Republicans, to put a Hispanic face on immigration and say that's the problem, or whether it's a Democratic instinct to put a Chinese face on trade and say that's the problem, rather than looking to those things that would make us attractive as an investment vehicle and as an investment platform and what would we have to do for individuals to vindicate the values of an equal opportunity society in the global equation we face right now? But it sounds like that's what you're speaking to. Well, you mentioned public education. You know, it is a sad thing that uh, our public schools are not keeping students in. Uh, it is true, it's a challenge in, uh, in disadvantaged neighborhoods, but some charter schools, some parochial schools, are able to get high graduation rates even in challenged neighborhoods. Uh, I think, therefore, we, and, and much has been written about the capacity of management of individual schools. The seniority system exists, and uh, that does not mean that you are necessarily a good manager. You just stay long enough as a teacher, and you end up by being the principal. Uh, it would be wonderful if there could be management training, and so we could upgrade the management of our high schools. And uh, that is not done. Uh, there are many forces that resist it. I've often thought that uh, some of the West Pointers who come back from Iraq and need an adjustment period who have wonderful skills in management. What an inspiration it would be for youngsters were they to be appointed a principal of a particular school and really manage that school and lead by example. It wouldn't be permitted in most uh, jurisdictions. But there's so many things that could be done mm -hmm. in a public and private manner. But there are a lot of forces that resist change because of how it will affect them. And uh, so I'm sensitive to that. I think we have to make the change be uh, acceptable to many more, but we can't let the few ruin the potential of the many. Carl, I have uh, two questions uh, before we open it up. One is uh, more broadly political, and one is more narrow and specific. The broader question really is trade conventionally doesn't play a huge role in presidential elections. Uh, but this time there's very sharp differences between the candidates. And my own experience in politics is that whenever is that, there is that kind of difference, candidates on both sides try and exploit it. Uh, because part of what a campaign is, is trying to demonstrate how you are different from the other candidate. 
The question is, does that drive Senator Obama further in the direction of saying, I'll tear up NAFTA, uh, I will make sure that we impose conditions on trade agreements that most countries would reject in a negotiation? Uh, does that leave him with less room if he's elected in the face of a Democratic majority? Conversely, with John McCain, does that lead him in the direction of trying to drive home many of these points, but then will face a broader Democratic majority if elected. So in that equation, what do you expect out of the political debate between now and Election Day, and then what do you expect out of either candidate once they're elected president in terms of the political situation they'll face? You're correct that this is the first time that we've had trade in play as a divisive issue because for 60 years we've had a bipartisan agreement that trade benefits our country. And trade, like never before, has been, is, a huge component of uh, diplomacy. It is the most valuable component of diplomacy. I could not draw a line between foreign policy and uh, economics at all. Uh, I do do think that uh, uh, the debate will focus on trade. It may be that uh, both, both sides want to reach the independence in the middle that they will come more to the center. What I worry about is that uh, those who have so condemned trade and pledged on television that they will vote against, for example, the agreement with Colombia or the agreement with Korea, uh, put themselves in a very difficult position to reverse themselves. Uh, If you will remember, Uh, President Bill Clinton said, I don't like the North American Free Trade Agreement, and I'll try to fix it, and I won't put it before the Congress unless I do fix it. And then he proceeded to engage in negotiations to have side agreements to fix it. So he left himself a trapdoor. Unfortunately, I think the candidates this time have not left themselves a trap door. And uh, there surely will be a Democratic House. There surely will be a Democratic Senate. So there is no reason to have the grand bargain that I always like to formulate in a negotiation because I voted for you because you were part of my party. And uh, it's hard then to do a U-turn. So I'm very worried and would love to see the rhetoric slow down, the population learn more, the balance now created through programs that reduce anxiety, because I think we are headed in the wrong direction. Uh, And Carla, maybe in the general questions we can come back to that in terms of how do you shape this debate uh, between now and November in a way that reinforces that more positive message? But the specific question I had is actually one I know you've had to grapple with, which relates to fast track. I mean, we have a constitution where Congress is given the exclusive power to lay tariffs and regulate foreign commerce. Uh, the president is the sole voice of foreign affairs, and we've had to come up with mechanisms to equilibrate those powers as a way of uh, giving the president the opportunity to lead and to use this tool of diplomacy as part of the broader reach of American foreign policy. Is Fast Track dead at this point? Uh, And if it is, what replaces it? Because we still are going to have to find some mechanism, again, to balance the constitutional powers 
of Congress and the executive that would allow us to take our place at the negotiating table. Well, you're right, Grant. Uh, but remember, President Clinton did not have fast track after 1994 during his whole administration. So he harvested the North American Free Trade Agreement and did a good job about putting it through our Congress mm -hmm. and the Oregon Round, and then was limited to uh, sectoral arrangements. But uh, with the current feeling against trade, unless we educate Americans so that they say, I want this done, and we go back to the period where we had Democrats who were pushing for open markets, the Finance Committee led by people like Lloyd Benson, and the House Committee of Ways and Means led by people like uh, uh, Danny Rostenkowski. Sure. Uh, yeah. They understood trade, and they understood how important it was, and they had this view that uh, the uh, partisanship stopped at the border, and trade was part of uh, have, uh, moving our nation ahead. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to do so that politicians uh, don't come up with independent notions as a general proposition. They read the polls. They want to, they want to stay in office. And so we've got a big job in educating Americans about what is good policy and what is very, very, very bad policy. Well, I've I always benefit from your tuition and uh, <laughs> have monopolized the conversation long enough, Carlos. So let's throw it open uh, for questions. So let's start here. I'm Bill Cooper with the Congressional Research Service. How are you, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> um, Ambassador Hills really appreciated your comments. And the focus of your is this on? It is. The focus of your um, your prescriptions were more domestic. Oriented. And I was wondering if both you and Grant would comment on the trade policy structure and the trade policy tools that are available. Um, as both of you mentioned, uh, globalization has been happening very rapidly and changing our economy. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether the trade policy structure we have now is adequate to, um, to address those challenges. For example, uh, the World Trade Organization, the Doha Round, uh, despite the best efforts of negotiators in Geneva, the Doha Round is basically stalled. Free trade agreements that we use, uh, it's very difficult to get those through Congress. We have trade remedies which are being challenged. Um, are these tools adequate for the challenges we face? If not, how might they be challenged? Now, Grant, you've been critical of the WTO and the Doha round and have called for um, major changes, and I think Ambassador Hills as well. And I was wondering if you would um, sort of expound on that. Why don't you start, and I'll follow. I may be less critical than you of the World Trade Organization. Those sorts of organizations are only as good as the members, and it needs great leadership capacity. I have not yet given up on Doha. I think it's a big, big challenge. But we now have 152 plus, I understand, a new uh, member coming in this summer, which will be 153 nations. We have greatly benefited by growing the pie. There is no example of our accepting goods from a poor country where we have not benefited by being able to uh, have that country use the currency that they've earned from their sales to us to buy capital equipment 
and goods that we sell. Even today, although we're working from a lower base, China is our fastest growing export market. Every state in the union, I believe, has triple digit increases in its exports to China. It is now our, our uh, fourth largest trading partner behind Canada, Mexico, and the European Union taken as a whole. It would be our third largest partner if we broke the European Union apart. It has surpassed Japan as our third largest partner, uh, trading partner. And so uh, we benefit hugely from keeping the trade barriers down globally. If we can do so, for 152 nations, we benefit because, relatively speaking, with some exceptions, our trade barriers are lower than those of others. Don't fool yourself. We have high peaks, and we have high peaks in areas that hurt poor countries. But relatively speaking, we're no worse than most of those in the OECD. So I prefer to have a multilateral trade agreement. I'm fully conscious of the fact that if you are on the same wavelength with a smaller group of countries, you can have a broader and more comprehensive agreement as we did with the North American Free Trade Agreement. There we eliminated barriers to agriculture between the United States and Mexico. That's never been done before. When Europe talks about a trade agreement, it's a bronze category. Ours is platinum. Generally speaking, no exceptions. So no restrictions on, on agricultural trade, opened up industrial, the industrial markets, opened up a broad range of services, top flight protection for intellectual property, investment protections. And so that's, it was a comprehensive and broad agreement. That, will, that you could not do with 152 nations. But if you, do, if you just take what's on the table with 152 nations, you're better off than walking away in a huff. So you try to do both. And frankly, our North American Free Trade Agreement was so astounding to the rest of the world. And because it was announced <clears throat> as an effort that was going to have free trade from the tip of, of Alaska down to the tip of Argentina, that it brought the naysayers back to the table in the Uruguay round within three months. And it also caused the Asia-Pacific region at Bogart to, uh, to pledge that they would have free trade within their region, 2010 by the uh, industrialized nations, 2020 by the developing nations. And it caused us at Miami in 1994 to pledge to have a free trade agreement for the Americas. So you can use an ambitious, large, comprehensive, and broad agreement to nudge and shock the rest of the world to move forward. So I'm not prepared to give up either and make it uh, all or nothing on either side. I think you need a broad strategy to deal with the circumstances that exist. And the circumstances that exist today is we have many fringe players at the global trading system that are very, very poor. About half the world is in poverty. We've got to change that for our security and for our economic prosperity. That means we should use multiple tools. Bill, if, okay. I don't, if you have just had two points. Yeah. One, um, 
It's actually a comment more about domestic policy than it is about uh, um, the WTO, but I'll come back to that. Um, the, the, the first and most important thing we ought to realize is that what globalization has done is, in some respects, collapse the distinction between what we've always thought about as international economic policy on the one hand and domestic policy on the other. You understand that as we used to think, or at least as I was taught reading my Kindleberger back in, uh, in uh, undergrad, was the idea that there was a set of border measures that had to be addressed and that that defined the terms of trade in some respects uh, is lost in this world of globalization. Now, if it is a global contest over capital, talent, and ideas, so much more of what we think of as our trade policy, how we succeed as a platform, how American firms and workers succeed, depends on what we do domestically. It depends on investments in education. It ends ending the lottery by birth. That is our public education system, as long as it's tied to domestic taxes. Soaking the educational environment and technology, because what defines your ability to work in the future is not competition with low-cost labor in China, but whether or not your job, you and me, Bill, can have it reduced to a set of if-then statements that can be done by a computer. And so the thing that we have to do is ensure that every child has the ability to use those tools to shape information because that's the economy that we're about to, we are living in, but that our children are definitely going to be in. So the first and most important thing is without that distinction, we have to rethink what we do as trade policy and there has to be a domestic component to it, which is really what Carla was alluding to in a series of programs. Beyond that, my criticism hasn't been so much of the WTO as how we negotiate within the WTO. And the mercantilist perspective that we've always used, remember, to solve a political problem. Uh, you had traditional protectionism, which was an industry trying to protect its interests. You had to have a countervailing force. This is all good, you know, Mansur Olson stuff, to try and offset the entrenched economic interests. So the goal was let's bargain for liberalization for our export interests that would swing them into the political process. Now, we're living in a world where that doesn't have the force it used to. And oh, by the way, Trying to negotiate a development round from the point from a mercantilist perspective just doesn't work. And so, I, as I've said, Doha's dead. And it was dead from the beginning once we started to bargain the same way we've traditionally bargained. Now, I'm going to surprise a few people, I think particularly Steve, when I say this, because my vision of what we should do in the WTO is actually pretty radical. It means that we have to think about whether or not we're actually bargaining for economic development. And as a part of that process, it's not just the idea that we're bargaining for market share or reduction in tariffs, the question is, what would actually create, expand the space of human freedom that individuals exercise around the world? And in our own world, and here's my peon to Steve, is that actually is a good sync with some of the things that our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle have said about negotiating on labor standards. Because allowing an individual to bargain for the full value of their own labor is quintessentially expanding human freedom. So there's a way to draw these together, but it means that you have to really get people to understand what economics is about. I want to set the conditions in another country that encourages income growth, because that's what creates the market. If I reduce tariffs and there is no broader economic freedom and there is no income growth, there is no market. So if I'm just knocking down Brazil's tariffs and they still don't give property rights to the people in the favelas, and a mortgage market that allows them to turn that into capital so they can put a roof over their heads and, and uh, get their kids through college. I'm not helping build a market for FMC, a chemical producer, in Philadelphia. To create that market, I have to think about what I'm bargaining for. I want to bargain for the result. 
And ultimately, that comes down to how you expand human freedom. And so the target is very different than saying, I just got to knock down this tariff or that tariff. That's part of it, but a very indirect route. So my critique of the WTO had much more to do with what we bargained for than the institution itself, because there's real value to the institution. And there's real value to the dispute settlement process, some of the things that is often criticized in the United States. But I think it really comes back to that critical thing, and that requires... You know, we think we have a, 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 a sort of backlash against globalization in this country. It's more profound in other places around the world. And that requires doing not only the hard political pushing and shoving to create the political space here in a consensus, but also trying to build that consensus more broadly. Now, let me drive back to what smart power was all about. <laughs> Ultimately, part of our foreign policy, if it's to give other people a stake in the success of the American enterprise, trade is a vehicle for doing that if we're bargaining for the right thing. And ultimately, that's bargaining for a thing that makes a difference in people's lives in other countries as well as here. Let me go over here, if I could. Thank you very much. Bethany Lurch from OSD Policy. And first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to speak with us this morning. In reference to your comment about multiple tools, um, realizing that increased trade and more open economic policies are the swiftest way towards uh, growth for these poverty-stricken countries of the developing world, um, but also that their lack of democratic institutions and law enforcement renders them undesirable trading partners. What is the best relationship, best method for integrating these developing, less, least developed countries through financial aid contributions and then more open trade? We need to use many tools to help those countries in poverty. Um, I'm less convinced that if you laden your trade agreements with demands for tremendous social change, that you will be as successful. History shows that uh, as countries get economic power, growth, and create a middle class, the middle class become great advocates for the very things that Grant accurately says we need in the world today. And uh, that certainly has been a pattern. If you think about a country like China, how far it has come. If we had said to China in uh, 2001, when it wanted to enter the World Trade Organization, you're going to have to do the following social things before we'll let you in, uh, we might have had a different outcome. And yet you look at between 2001 and 2008, China has changed dramatically. There are, there's much more liberalization today. They have brought in a new level of leaders. They do not define democracy in the Western sense. But they do have elections at the grassroots. And there is today circulating in the party communist school a 366-page study on the fact that China must move to liberalize and create rule of law as a safety valve for the discontent that people are feeling because of pollution, inflation, lack of uh, services, and that kind of thing. And so the spectrum within the party school, these are the communists that talk to the leadership, 
they have a group of what we might call liberals who are debating within themselves of how fast to move in what period of time. And I think that that fact, if you look around the world, particularly in Asia, that countries have moved a long distance by creating a middle class. And when we go into a country and show our values, our commercial prowess, and we, the private sector helps move the process along. Um, I could point to Mexico, where there was a one-party rule for 70 years. And uh, the trade agreement with Mexico in 1993 uh, was a sort of an umbrella that caused the middle class and entrepreneurs to begin to challenge the government. And to not, today, we have a functioning democracy, elections that are maybe too robust. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I think that we, uh, we don't want to lose the tool of trade openings that create economic growth and laden it too heavily with social demands for which a country at that moment cannot absorb, is not ready. And to this very day, Leaders like Lee Kuan Yew will say, feed your people first, and we'll deal with these other issues later. And most people in Singapore are pretty happy, except those getting caned for chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Carla, it's a, it's a little bit like what uh, the, the elder Mayor Daly said in Chicago, which is if you're going to take the people's money, put it in the streets where they can see it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been adopted by the younger Mayor Daly. But to your point about that, so Chicago's looking pretty doggone good from you know when I used to visit there as a kid. But to your point, uh, I'm more of a swings and roundabouts kind of guy in terms of how uh, what we do on the economic side relates to what we do on the military side. Uh, when we talk about smart power, you can either try and address the problems that create a haven for an awful lot of bad things, narcotics, trafficking, uh, weapons of mass destruction, all the things that are the new challenges we face in a security environment uh, at the outset, or you can pay for it later, and you're going to have to use the front end of a spear to solve the problem. Uh, now, as a part of that, what we should remember, and I think one of the lessons having served in the Bush administration, is that you can't deliver democracy at the end of a barrel of a gun. It has to be something that's demanded from within a society. And in that context, trade is relevant. And the way it's relevant is that people need the economic wherewithal to grab their political rights, to demand their political freedom. It shouldn't be lost on us that the Magna Carta wasn't something that King John granted mm -hmm. to the nobles. It's something they took <laughs> from King John, right? And so until you really have given people the economic power, to their economic freedom, it's very hard for them to exercise their political rights. It's one of the reasons why I think in our concept of human rights, um, dating back to this many years ago in law school when I did work for Amnesty International, the reality was I felt our idea about human rights was far too narrow. In fact, by th focusing on political rights exclusively, you really lost that part of the equation, which was some very simple things. How does a peasant protect their home from the depredation or the predation of their own government? How do they ensure the enforceability of contracts? 
if they come up with an idea, how can they exploit it commercially to create a business and employ other people? Well, those are some pretty fundamental human rights at the end of the day because it's the basic human act of exchange that you're trying to protect that allows people to specialize from which we get productivity gains and all good things flow economically. So at the end of the day, you can either pay for it on the front end by doing the right thing with your trade policy, or you can pay for it on the back end at the end of the spear. And Grant, yeah. uh, uh, tr when we talk about trade, we're not just uh, selling oranges. We're talking about open markets for investment. And our companies that have invested abroad have brought their values and have given the jobs, so they're helping to create a middle class, just like we get six, six million jobs from the foreign investment that comes into our country. And uh, indeed, those jobs, on average, pay more than the jobs in our overall economy. Mm -hmm. So that the multinationals that move about bring their values and create the middle class that clamors for these changes that we applaud. I was, Carla, I was, uh, at one point I was in Xiamen. Uh, we were there at the request of the Chinese, basically to beat up on their uh, companies about intellectual property. <laughs> they wanted to use us uh, to, as the stocking horse or the, the weapon in some respects in the fight intellectual property. We're in a cab and we're driving down the coast. And, uh, you know, they have these beautiful causeways that go out into the ocean. And at that point, you're as close to Taiwan as you can get. You can look across the straits and see Kimoi and Matsu, which some of us are old enough in this room to remember that that was a, a, a point between the United States and China at one point. Well, uh, we drive by this sign. It's just enormous along the causeway. And so I asked the cab driver, what does that sign say? And he says, that sign says one country, two systems. And it's visible in Taiwan. It's so big, it's visible in Taiwan. And so I looked over there, and I noticed, well, there was a sign on the Taiwan side as well. And so I said to the cab driver, what does that sign say? Now, in slightly more colorful language, he said, that sign says, get bent. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't a story about cross-straits relations. It's a story about the freedom he felt to express himself, right? And the remarkable thing was being a cab driver and owning his own little business had given him greater freedom in an <laughs> ironic sort of way. But I thought it was a good way of distilling what I, I knew I felt in my, my bones at some respect. I'm going to try and work my way back and then come back, but I guarantee that our friends over here are going to get a shot. But let me see if I can go a little back there. Chris Watley with the Council of State Governments. Uh, I agree that, that domestic policy reform is you know, a key to easing some of the anxiety out there in the public, but at the same time, trade policy itself has kind of expanded into domestic policy. And, you know, challenges to gambling laws and environmental regulations, certainly among the state government leaders I work with are a source of anxiety. And I'm wondering if you think that there is any kind of federal government institutional change that needs to take place to be able to, to have a better dialogue on domestic policy issues. You know, USTR is 200 people who are overworked and in you know, one small building. and uh, It's like school teacher there. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the federal government need to do to better uh, confront that challenge, easing the, the anxiety that uh, things like the Antigua-Barbuda case causes at the state and local level, but also just dealing with this, this uh, need to have a better dialogue on this domestic policy, foreign trade uh, kind of linkage? When we negotiated in the Uruguay round, we had uh, not only a dialogue, with state and local governments, we had permanent committees to advise uh, USTR on their concerns. Uh, the, 
World Trade Organization has no jurisdiction to change federal law. Uh, what the World Trade Organization says is you will commit not to discriminate and to give national treatment. And uh, we have rules that, uh, uh, that follow those lines. If at any time the federal government says uh, uh, we do not wish to, uh, to participate, uh, we're not going to listen to the WTO, we can take the withdrawal of concessions that other nations have given us on that issue. Um, and for the most part, up to now, we have not been willing to do that when little Costa Rica wins a uh, case against the United States over cotton socks. Uh, we don't uh, walk away from little Costa Rica because we believe that the system has served us well over time, so we abide by the panel ruling in the WTO. And, of course, this is a system that we help, help to, uh, to build. But it is a misconception to suggest that we therefore have given away our sovereignty. Not at all. This is an association of members, and we don't have to agree with any panel. The only thing they can do is exactly what they could do if we didn't have the World Trade Organization, and that is perhaps even a little less, because if we were not a member of the World Trade Organization, we would be governed by the law of the jungle, and their nations could probably do a lot more uh, by way of punitive activity uh, when we did something they didn't like, uh, because at least the panels say, not only have you violated a commitment that you've made, but this is the amount of damage you've caused by violating it, and so the penalty fits the violation or the alleged violation. But to your point about uh, state preferences on particular uh, regulation, uh, I think communication with the government as to uh, our needs so that uh, when the negotiations take place, uh, we have uh, that clearly in mind. You're right, USTR is small, 200 people. And it, it doesn't have an expert in any particular sector, nor does it have a sheriff to enforce. What it relies upon are those interests to come in and say, this is the problem. And uh, what USTR are, I think, a great group of negotiators to try to negotiate in a fashion that will give us rules that don't discriminate against our businesses or our people and give us at least national treatment. That is as good a treatment within any country as they give to their own nationals. If I could just say a word about mechanics. Um, in my question to Carla about what we need to do to recreate some way of equilibrating the political powers between Congress and the executive has to grapple with this issue. Mm -hmm. And while there are institutionally things that require or that USTR has created to have this conversation, it's not something Congress has actually mandated. Uh, it's not something where Congress has said, oh, by the way, have you checked with the states? Which I think actually makes a lot of sense, to be honest with you, because of the federalist system that we live in and because we don't pay enough attention to the value of that in terms of building a political consensus. So I think there's a real value to reaching out to the states, both the legislatures and the governor's associations, to have that conversation. Because you really want to go to the table uh, with the strongest possible hand as the negotiator. And, you know, even if you create that, though, I have to add always one footnote, because, you know, the great lesson of Washington is your people are your policy. 
So if it's Carla Hills who's doing the negotiating, she will reflexively go have that conversation whether Congress required it or not. You've got to have people that have that sensibility in the job as negotiators so that what they're always thinking about is, have I done the things necessary to give me the strongest hand when I'm at the negotiating table, including sitting down with the governors and the state legislatures when there are important issues in our federalist system that are at stake when you sit down at the table. I think the last thing about these things like the Barbuda case, you know, uh, it, we always used to think that getting more lawyers involved in negotiations <laughs> was a good idea and that the dispute settlement process was a good thing and all that kind of stuff. What these cases uh, do, which decide issues that were never imagined by the negotiators, is impose a different discipline on negotiators now. So that going forward, you have to be thinking about this issue at the table. No USDR negotiator should be in a position where they are talking about these issues, like a services agreement which has a broad catch-all provision, without thinking, hey, wait a minute. I need to be mindful about how this is going to be interpreted by the appellate body, and I doggone well have better thought about the implications for federalism in the states as a part of that process. But that's something that has to be required from the negotiator's perspective so that they've got that instinct when they're at the table and they're alive to the problems it will cause unless they get it right at the end of the day. I mean, I promised I'd get back over here. Yeah. Whitney, uh, Duke University. Uh, how would you get uh, trade adjustment assistance through? Who would qualify for it? That's always been the, the difficult issue. Who, who, who has, how do you identify people that have been hurt by trade. I mean, who gets the assistance? That's always seemed to me to be the stumbling block. And the second thing, I totally agree with you on public education, but is there any real hope for major change given the strength of the teachers' union? Thank you. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to pass on that. Go <laughs> about it. You take the first <laughs> Trade adjustment assistance uh, has to be formulated into law. I gave you a couple of the uh, limitations that don't make any sense in today's economy, the exclusion of services workers. I would include them. Also, you, uh, if you, have a, you can only get trade adjustment assistance if you've been effect, adversely affected on trade as a result of a free trade agreement. I think trade adjustment assistance, if it were to be effective to reduce anxiety and to... And to uh, uh, I would I would go for wage insurance that would keep the worker in the in the workforce. Uh, that is a component, but a limited component. Fifty thousand uh, uh, fifty years of age and ten thousand dollar gap. Let let me just uh, uh, give you an example. Assume you have a steel worker who gets a pink slip and was making eighty thousand uh, dollars. He's in a in a state and he gets a job. At an entry level, so he's no better. He, he's 45 years old, making $80,000, and uh, he's an energetic guy. He's, pl- he's he's clocked in every day. He's a great worker. He finds a job with a computer company, and uh, but he's no better than the 23-year-old. In fact, he may be technologically less effective than the 23-year-old, and uh, he's an entry level. And they're going to pay him $40,000 to start. They're glad to have him because he's demonstrated a good work record. He's got a $40,000 gap. Now, let's suppose that we had legislation that were to ensure that $40,000 gap, 90% the first year, 80% the second year, 70% the third year. I haven't worked out the figures other than generically. By the third year, he's no longer an entry-level worker. He's three years older. 
And he probably has skipped a couple of uh, groups because he has experience and experience is education. And uh, he has gotten the training. He is now in the computer sector. He never was unemployed. We didn't play unemployment insurance. And he's got the best uh, training that we could have given him. Instead of sending him off to a community college, which I, I bless, but uh, he, he is now computer effective. I think that's a good program. He doesn't resent trade. He has now moved up the ladder. He has a good job and a better future. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, how to structure that it will require legislators to come together and not ask for too much, but not give too little. And frankly, the bill trade adjustment assistance today is so limited, it doesn't fit today's economy when it excludes service workers who are eight out of 10 of our workers. You have a follow-up. Does he have to prove that he lost the job because of trade? Today he does. I would, I would extend this, as I say. I'm a great plantation owner. I would water every tree. I've got to get you to quit using the word plantation, though, Carla. <laughs> That's just got the wrong historical connotation. You're a good timberland owner. That's it. <laughs> You're an investor but in a timberland REIT. <laughs> I want to strengthen every single person so that they stand tall and are well-educated in today's society. If 30% of our kids don't graduate from high school, where are they going to go? Probably to prison. This is not good for the country. Forget the anxiety factor. That, that limits our trade, that creates the growth and, and maintains our security, this doesn't work. Yeah, I'd go, I, I, just to put a couple of uh, little uh, mechanics beneath the, the broad point that Carla was making, uh, you get rid of the, those requirements altogether. You combine unemployment insurance, trade adjustment assistance, and the Workforce Investment Act. Uh, what you do is you create a menu of options that facilitate the ability of people to get back to work. The best training goes, takes place on the job. The best training and skills that are market relevant takes place on the job. So our goal has to be getting people back to work at the end of the day. So you want to provide that option, including, I would say, the opportunity through SBA to create their own business. If it's a 55-year-old aerospace engineer that wants to create a consulting business and sell their services at a higher price back to Boeing for the job they were previously doing, which is now happening in the aerospace industry, we should find a way to get them to do that, right? Because that's in our interest. That creates much more in the way of jobs and employment, ultimately, than the notion that we're just going to bring somebody back to work. So there's a menu, I think, that you'd want to do. Now, is there a price tag? Yes. yes. And I'm in favor of paying a fairly significant price. And here's the way I would put it to most of my friends on the side of the aisle, is that, number one, Carla said earlier, every year our economy benefits the tune of $1.2 trillion because of our engagement in the global economy. There is no sum that we will pay for this sort of training exercise that is significant in the face of the gain that we will get if we continue to be engaged in the global economy. The other thing I'd say is that these are things that actually make much more sense as an economic development model because you are making investments in your workforce. And just to add one final point, the demographics we're facing, despite the debate we're having about unemployment right now, and we'll always have about unemployment, the reality is we are becoming labor score sore, scarce, and we are capital rich. And in that environment, we have to be making sure workers can succeed in an environment that is labor short, capital rich. That means being able to use technology. So the training programs we do have have to be geared in a direction that, again, is kind of soaked with that technology from the start. Yeah, Claude. I'd like to go back to Ambassador uh, Hill's point about uh, 
what we are negotiating in terms of trade policy and your point that you didn't think that in trade agreements you ought to write something that forces somebody to do something that you, that you look you use China as an example as opposed to telling them. But isn't that where we are? I mean, if you look now in the United States and what Republicans have accepted, they've accepted in terms of at least free trade agreements, forget about the WTO that could come next, uh, that we demand that our trading partners have, have, uh, have enacted the so-called five core labor standards. There are seven envir multilateral environmental treaties that we're demanding. And it seems to me that we are already into that, into that mode, and that has changed change trade policy, and that is true also, it seems to me, in, in the WTO and the problems you're facing there. The WTO in its future will be negotiating things that we have normally, I think, as mentioned up there, we have normally counted as, trade, as, as domestic policy. It goes deep into the social fabric when you get involved in GMOs or health and safety of, of individual nation states, and yet we are, that is where we are, and it seems to me that if you go back to the United States, to bring this back to the United States, this is a fundamental difference between the Republican view of trade, as it's traditionally been known, and the Democratic view of trade. And those are perfectly legitimate, it seems to me, viewpoints. But the Republicans have retreated over the last decade and now have accepted as a, as a principle that we will demand that other nations live up to certain obligations. It, and it's going to be a problem in the future not, I won't go beyond that just in terms of flagging this. It's something you just can't face away from. And it's going to be more with a super Democratic majority, it seems to me. Was that a question? <laughs> <laughs> it is true that uh, uh, labor and environmental issues have come into trade agreements. And would it have been better for the International Labor Organization, which was formed in 1919, has considerable expertise with respect to labor commitments to have taken on the labor issues and shown a bright light on those that are failing? Probably so. But uh, we are a democracy, and the politics have driven labor to the point that it is. Uh, there are eight core standards that uh, uh, the International Labor Organization has adopted. The United States hasn't adopted all of them, but uh, our political process is asking other nations to adopt those core standards. In the past, we have asked other nations to enforce their own labor laws, which uh, on the trade agreements that we've negotiated, those labor laws have been adequate uh, for the most part. The problem has been enforcement, not lack of legislation. But uh, I uh, am not as, uh, as off-put as you are, Claude, about an, uh, if we limit it to those eight core standards. Uh, I think that uh, that is not going to destroy the negotiations. Uh, and uh, that uh, uh, I do worry, to a certain extent, that we overburden trade so that we will trip and fall and not achieve agreements because we our agenda is so long, so varied, and that's why when you say I'm going to add democracy to it, mm -hmm. you uh, often find yourself not being able to accomplish your basic objective, which is to get the market open to trade, capital, uh, services, 
and ideas and people. And that is a controversial issue. Yeah, Carlo, I think, identified the right issue, which is, you know, how much freight can it bear, Claude? Yeah. It's the one you're pointing out as well. And it is a little bit, again, like the public school system. You know, instead of asking teachers to teach, we oftentimes have them doing a whole lot of other social services, which may be necessary, but you'd rather have people who are good at teaching, teaching, rather than doing all these other things. And there's that risk in the trading system. On the other hand, I have to admit, I've always looked at this as a question of price, Claude. You know, is uh, if I'm if I want higher labor standards somewhere else, what am I willing to give up? Am I willing to give up my sugar policy? Well, you and I would probably both agree yes. that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that there's poor black women losing their jobs on the south side of Chicago because of sugar prices in this country right now. That seems horrible. <laughs> you know, that can't be the way this was designed to work, right? But, but that not not. not not, not so clear in the sense that part of what we should be bargaining for and the basis on which we ought to be building a consensus is to understand that those vestiges of mercantilism in our own policy club are damaging to interests of people at the bottom of the economic ladder. Part of the debate that's going on politically consciously avoids that. You know, if you're Senator Obama, I'm going to say just, you know, as a, I guess this would be a slightly partisan comment. If you're Senator Obama, you're in a situation where you take a certain stance with respect to trade and with respect to a farm bill while ignoring the implications for poor black women on the south side of Chicago. The political debate should illuminate that as a choice he has made, right? Now, you could say the same thing for John McCain in a variety of other instances as well. But I think that's part of where the trade debate has to go because otherwise we won't break free in one sense of even the mercantilism that lies at the heart of some of the things that, uh, that we do at the end of the day. Let me, okay, let's do, let me go all the way in back, over there. We'll do, let's say, three more. Is that okay? Sure, Is that absolutely. enough? You comfortable with that? Please. Sylvester Champ from Voice America. Uh, my question is about the trade adjustment program. You talk about um, paying for retraining these workers. How do you propose to pay for a program like this? If you tax all companies, that's almost an unfair uh, taxation on companies that do not benefit from the trade and subsidizing the company that benefit from the trade. Now, if you just tax the company that benefit from the trade, you are hurting the, you're putting a roadblock, um, almost essentially a tariff, on the trade agreement you just uh, negotiated. Now, given the situation with our national debt, where do you propose this money comes from? I'll tackle that if you don't mind, Carla. One is that uh, our national debt ain't as big as everybody seems to think. Uh, number one, the money's there. It depends on how you want to spend it. So let me, let me confront you with a choice. We right now have an active adjustment policy in New London, Connecticut, which consists of building more nuclear submarines to keep people employed in New London, Connecticut. Is that a wise choice in terms of our defense posture? No. Is, that doesn't confront the challenges we faced in defense terms. Is it a wise choice of how we would spend our money on adjustment policy? Let me tell you, I know there's two senators in Connecticut that would really want to keep those people employed in New London, but that is a candidate, frankly, to say we ought to be using that money differently if we really are employing it in an in adjustment policy. So there's one. The second thing I'd say is that, honestly, in terms of what you pay here, this is something where the individual company shouldn't pay. This is a broad social safety net that should come out of general revenue. And indeed, we ought to get away from the whole idea of FICA and FUDA and things that fund those programs. And let's be honest about who pays for these programs so that the beneficiaries understand where the money's coming from 
and that we're not playing hide in the ball. You'd be surprised to know that the way we finance these programs now is by and large through a hugely reg regressive tax. It falls entirely on wages, and it's capped at $90,000. And it is relatively high at about 15% of wages, all in. That makes no sense if you want a broader distribution of the benefits of globalization. So dropping that tax, allowing the income tax to bear more of that burden, and then confronting people with a choice if they actually want to face the higher taxes to pay for both the submarine and the TAA program is the choice I think we have to confront our political process with. Otherwise, we will not have been honest with the real problem that caused the anxiety and the lack of programs that are there to help people when they face the choices they face. Uh, let me go over here. Hi, Jim Michael with DPK Consulting. Uh, I wanted to go back to the human rights set of issues. Uh, you've discussed this in an international context and in a negotiating uh, context, but it also, it seems to me, is one of these domestic political issues that affects public attitudes about trade. And it's often presented as an issue of fairness in terms of does the person here lose a job, does the person who gets a job in a country that is a poor country and is exploited, you know, benefit in the, to a degree disproportionate to the, to the loss to the uh, worker in the United States. Now, this is an issue you can argue with, uh, or a position you can argue with, uh, but if you have these eight standards, which is not what should the wage right be, but rather should you have the right to bargain, uh, how do you deal with that as a domestic issue that will have an impact on public attitudes toward trade? And it seems to me explanations of you know, what will happen 20 years from now, maybe, in the evolution of a society is, is not a sufficient way to deal with that issue. And I just wonder, how do you deal with the argument that uh, the benefits of trade uh, are offset uh, by this uh, unfairness? And uh, how do you respond to, uh, to the need for fairness in, the, in our society that, that calls out for uh, uh, something more than uh, someday? <laughs> Yeah, well, two thoughts. One is to remind you that um, our pursuit of individual freedom and an equal opportunity society as a matter of course is actually the policies best designed to ensure we succeed in the global economy. Um, you are, in effect, developing policies that guarantee that result with your public education system, with your TAA program, are quintessentially about increasing or expanding the opportunity and providing people with the tools to shape their own economic future. So understanding that what we do in this area, whether it's on the domestic side or the international side, is deeply linked to the sort of values we hold dear, Jim, I think is essential. Because that's not about some future thing. That's about the society we want to create now. It's also about a society that we think we want to create globally so that other people have that opportunity. So I do think in some respects it's coming back to the values that we want both here and how we give people a stake in the American enterprise so we can persuade people that those are broadly writ the values we would want to see worldwide. That's number one. Economically, I think that ultimately you have to grapple with the issue of fairness by identifying those things that really should be on the negotiating agenda, going back to Claude's point, in pure trade terms. So should we have an artificial debate about uh, currency with China? when in fact the real issue is the lack of a functioning capital market that penalizes 
Chinese savers as much as it does anybody in the United States. That creates problems that metastasized into trade conflicts. So let's put that on the agenda. Let's make sure that the discussion we're having is how do you have a functioning capital market? How do you bring financial companies into that that drive change so you don't see overcapacity in whether it's steel, autos, the sorts of things that we know are going to generate the conflicts. But until you've put those issues on the trade agenda squarely, as opposed to saying we just have a model we want to impose whenever we sit down to bargain, then I don't think you're going to be cultivating the kind of political support that you need as a part of this process. So the practical side, I think, on the trade front is very much having an aggressive agenda that goes after the distortions that are left in the market, which I don't view as purely mercantilist necessarily, Claude, so much as saying it's realistic that since we're no longer talking about protectionism that's based on industry interests, we're talking about a populism that is born of those anxieties and fears that we better have an agenda that we're negotiating for that really addresses the underlying problems where you can go back to members of Congress and say, we're taking care of that. And if we don't take care of that, we shouldn't be engaged in some broad trade liberalization that benefits another country at the end of the day. I think that's the equation we're facing. And I think it's the only way you actually come back to some sort of bipartisan consensus. Keep in mind, we live in a globalized world. And uh, if we benefit a poor country, they will be customers of ours. And the lady on the south side of Chicago is more likely to have a job. If you track surges of imports since 1960, there is a very high correlation with import surges and an increase in U.S. employment for a very good and understandable reason. When companies are wealthy and able to buy a lot, they're producing a lot, they hire more workers. Uh, That is something that most people don't know. Similarly, when there has been a surge in unemployment, there has been a fall-off of imports. So trade has a good opportunity for Americans to get it going. And that is a value that uh, uh, we want to keep our, our population employed. I'm reminded, actually, Carla, you know, when you think about things like trade and the environment, about uh, what happened in Indonesia uh, after the Asian financial crisis. Yes. So the, you know, remember, there were lots of complaints about whether or not people in Indonesia were working in sweatshops for Nike. Right. And Nike was facing this sort of challenge of how do you say, well, look, we're just here to provide jobs. And I thought the best counter-argument was a piece that I read in the Wall Street Journal that said that the people in Indonesia who'd lost their jobs in the Nike factory were now killing endangered species, making soup out of them, and selling to pirates yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the Malacca Straits. That can't be a good result. <laughs> we, they were better off, and we were better off if they were employed by Nike. And so in one sense, I think it also has taken the practical examples and figuring out what our economist friends always say is the counterfactual. Because the counterfactual here is a pretty negative one unless you're trying to pursue that liberalization. And there are different tools to deal with different issues. As a result, Nike really focused on corporate responsibility wherever it was located. And a number of corporations have done that. And they did that because of consumers here that said, we don't want that trade-off. And we had that experience with the tuna dolphin case where... uh, Forget the law, forget the negotiations. When uh, uh, fishermen were killing tuna 
or killing the dolphins that did not, they did not have extrudable nets to let them out as they pulled in the tuna, uh, people, the private sector, not-for-profits, advertised which were the ones that were humane toward the dolphins and which were not. And the pressure was so tremendous that fishermen got extrudable nets. So it isn't all the negotiations. I mean, we all are responsible members of the global population, and there are different ways to treat with different ills. Let's take one last one, please. I'm Steve Kelly from the State Department. Uh, to what extent do you think that hardening attitudes about trade in this country are related to hardening attitudes about immigration, that the fear people feel isn't just the computer program in India taking their job, but at certain levels illegal immigration, illegal immigrants taking their jobs. And if those two things are related, if growing fears about immigration are pronounced, is that perhaps what's broken the consensus of 60 years that trade is good? And do you have to attack the immigration problem to get uh, to, towards more positive attitudes about trade? Well, I regard immigration as part of uh, an open philosophy toward people in uh, before World War I, we didn't even have passports. People moved about as they saw fit. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, when I practiced law in California, we had a program where the migrants could come in with a green card, pick the fruit, and they would go home because there was no restriction on coming and going so long as you had the green card. Uh, that program was stopped, and so many stayed, and so they're undocumented. Their green card has expired. And uh, many who want to come, come not in search of a job. I think the statistics show that they have a job, but they want a better job. And pay differential is so substantial, they're willing to take the hardship of the desert crossing and the legal problems. Uh, I think that uh, we've got to deal with that. Uh, we would be horrified uh, if a country's abroad were to have some of the immigration policies that we have. We would be startled by it. And quite honestly, as we're aging, I hate to admit it, but uh, as we are aging, we, we're going to need people to fill the gap. Interestingly, Mexico has a uh, youthful population now, but it's a bell curve that's going to fall off in 2000, probably 2025. And they won't want to come because they will have labor shortage and they will be using their people to a greater extent. Seems to me that uh, it would not be too difficult to work out a mechanism to deal with the immigrants who are here and are undocumented and treat with the problem uh, of uh, letting in a sufficient number so that the ebb and flow that worked so well years ago could be uh, resumed. I think it would help our economy, and uh, I think we need the, uh, the workers. We have benefited from them in the past, but it is a highly controversial issue, and uh, I think it, it certainly does. It's on that long list of stagnant wages, uh, insecurity of, of jobs that people list, not necessarily with an accurate correlation, but that uh, it fuels their anxiety. Steve, I would say my first job in the Foreign Service was at the uh, Consulate General in Tijuana, of all places. <laughs> and half of it was pulling sailors out of jail on Saturday morning, and the, the other half of it was uh, punching visas. And uh, in those visa interviews, what I found was remarkable. Well, let me give you one example. 
I sit down. It was that classic thing you face as a 24-year-old foreign service officer where you realize that this very young uh, Mexican man has come in and he's married to a 65-year-old uh, U.S. <laughs> woman. And you, even at that stage as a newlywed, I thought, nah, this doesn't look right. You know? <laughs> so I thought, okay, I did what they tell you to do in the foreign affairs manual. I get them in separate rooms and ask them the color of the wallpaper in their bedroom and talk about their <laughs> toothbrushes and things like that. Clear visa fraud. So I do what, again, the Foreign Affairs Manual tells you to do. I go back and say, well, you have a choice. Uh, you, can either, uh, uh, you can either withdraw the application or uh, I declare you 214B or whatever, stick in the Avalos system, and you can never get into the country legally. Right? He does the right thing. Later that day, I have to give a speech in San Diego at Security Pacific Bank about capital flight. Now, you, you can imagine, this is 1980 and 1982, so the balloon is about to go up on the debt crisis. And, and because of the economic policies in Mexico, money is just pouring out of Mexico and the United States. You have people paying cash for apartments in San Diego, right? So I go to Security Pacific Bank. Lo and behold, here's this guy with his <laughs> uniform on gardening outside of the Security Pacific Bank. And I'm trying to say to myself, how did anything I did as a part of that, or anything about our immigration policy, affect this equation? It just didn't. To Carla's point, making it legal to do that without a guarantee of citizenship at the end, so that that individual could come out of the shadows, work legally, contribute both to our society as well as send some money back home, makes a whole lot more sense to me, just as a matter of immigration policy. But now taking it one step further, if you think about the world I describe, and if this really is a contest globally over capital, talent, and ideas, one of the things that we should do with our immigration policy is not be beholden to this populist instinct. And, of course, Lou Dobbs is a good barometer here. I like the fact he doesn't talk about trade so much anymore. But, oh, my God, now he's talking about uh, immigration. immigration. <laughs> right? But when I look at that, I say to myself, how come I can't persuade people to look at our immigration policy that want to persuade them to look at our trade policy, which is, what should we do with this set of rules that would encourage companies, whether they're domestic or foreign, to invest here? Well, I would create a set of policies that allowed them to manage their human resources and bring the talent to this country that they need to make an investment work. And that would be eliminating H2B, it would be limiting the L1 intracompany transfer, all that crap. Right? You come, you invest. I want to make sure you have a way of managing your human resources that's consistent with an effective investment in the United States and one that generates returns and creates jobs for people. But I think that's the level at which you have to fight this sort of trend to say that immigration is about creating a 700-mile fence on our southern border. Even my son, who just graduated from you know, Yorktown High School out in Arlington, comes home the day that this is first announced. Somebody's proposed a fence and says to me, Dad, don't they know that the Mexican border is longer than 700 miles? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got to admit, I remember that myself. But I think that's the level at which you kind of have to fight this, which is to say there is a better way to use our immigration policy that serves our broader purposes of trying to attract investment in this global age rather than allowing ourselves to be stripped down and defined by imposing a 700-mile barrier on the southern border. Well, we which can't makes build no the sense. wall because we, we don't have the workers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll have to build it before they leave. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's where we should draw the line. Uh, <laughs> we'll build our own wall right now. At any rate, thank you very much for coming. I hope that uh, it interests you both in trade, number one, but also in smart power. <laughs>